0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 20 today. But we're going to pick up our reading in verse 17 so that we can get the context. Starting in verse 17. Friends, listen. This is the Word of God. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of Christ. We've been looking over the last four weeks in a series, How Do I Understand the Bible? We've been looking at Jesus' understanding of the Bible. Um, And as we've done that, we've been seeing that Jesus can teach us how we can understand the Bible. And we've walked through these verses one by one. In verse 17, Jesus says, the Bible is all about me. It points to me. I have come to bring it to life. And if you want to understand the Bible, you can see it in flesh and blood as you look at me in, in the life that I live In verse 18, Jesus says the Bible is relevant, and it will be relevant as long as God's world uh, exists. So God's word lasts as long as God's world. And then last week in verse 19, we saw that the proper response to the Bible is to share it with others. So that you do it and you teach others to do it as well. And so today we're going to finish What Jesus says here about the Bible and Jesus says something that would have been incredibly shocking and pointed to his hearers And so here's the point that we're going to see today Um, If you want to write something down, here's what we're going to look at This is what we're going to see. We're going to see that the righteousness that Jesus requires is internal and external Okay, the righteousness that Jesus requires is internal and external Okay, that's what we're going to see. And to understand this verse, Jesus mentions the scribes and the Pharisees. We need to get a little bit of a glimpse of the history of these two groups of folks. Okay? This is not the first time we've encountered them in Matthew, but it's one of the places where we begin to understand Jesus' opinion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I want you to know who these folks are so that you can really understand why Jesus says what he says. The scribes first, they're actually introduced to us in the Old Testament. Okay, the scribes, the most famous scribe in the Old Testament. Anybody want to venture a guess? Begins with the letter E. Has the name of the Bible, name of the book of the Bible written after him. Four letters. Ezra. Ezra. Ezra is the most famous. Um, Listen to what it says in Ezra chapter 7. This is verse 6. It says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe. And listen to what it says about the scribe. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra, the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Then Nehemiah, right after Ezra, Nehemiah chapter 8, in verse 5, it says there, um, it says, And Ezra and the rest of the scribes opened the book in the sight of all the people, read from the book, from the law of God, Clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Kind of sounds like what we do every Sunday, right? We read the Bible and then we give the sense so that we can all understand it. Now, in the New Testament, the scribes do show up in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, You may not remember this, but um, you remember when in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men showed up and they said, where's the king? There's been a king born. We've seen his star. We've come to worship him. And Herod freaks out. Right? Herod starts trembling in his boots. And what does he do? Well, Matthew 2 says he summoned the scribes and the chief priests. And assembling them together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, because that's what it says in the prophets, in the book of Micah. And so the scribes were some of the official Bible interpreters and Bible teachers of Jesus' day. Okay? Now, the Pharisees, they're actually not in the Old Testament. Okay? They're not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. They are a grassroots organization of Jews that came up in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Okay? And let me just give you a little bit of their history so you can understand more about them, because it will help you as you read and you see them in the Bible. So they had no official power. Okay, they were not ordained in Scripture, they were not appointed, they were, they they had no official power, but they were connected to the different parts of the religious leadership in Israel. Okay, in this passage we see they're connected with the scribes, and, and there's actually 20 different places in the New Testament where it says scribes and Pharisees. There's other places where they're connected with the priests, and other places where they're connected with the Sadducees. And so, Because they had no formal power, they had to rely on influence. Okay, so they were sort of the influencers of the... They would influence the formal power structures to get their way and to see that their agenda was carried out. And so we remember, you might remember, um, in the story of Saul, remember who became Paul? Before he became a Christian, he was a Pharisee, and he was actively persecuting the church. He had to go to the chief priest to get permission to be able to arrest Christians. Okay, he couldn't do that on his own. He had no power. He had to get authority to do that. So the name Pharisee, let's talk about that for a second. It just, it meant sharp or accurate. Okay, and so presumably they called themselves this to try to bolster their uh, the, you know, their sense because branding matters. We're the sharp ones. We're the accurate ones, especially when it comes to interpreting the Old Testament, interpreting the Hebrew Bible. Okay? And so if the scribes were the official Bible teachers of Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the enforcers of strict obedience to the Bible. Okay? Um, And so you want to think about kind of a morality police. Okay? Folks that would go around trying to police the morality of the people of Israel. Okay? Um... Their goal was to make the whole nation of Israel more obedient, okay? And so we see in the, in the Gospels, they're super strict, and they're incredibly passionate about following the smallest details of the Bible, and they try to get everyone else to do it, too. Okay, now, what was motivating them? They were motivated, really, toward ritual and ceremonial purity above all else. When you see them in the Gospels, that's what they're always talking about. That's what they're always arguing about. The rituals in the Old Testament. The the ceremonial purity of the Old Testament. They actually saw themselves as the only ones who were doing it right. Okay? They saw the awful paganism of Rome. They saw the awful paganism of the the country and the people around them outside of Israel. Um, And then they also saw the unfaithful and the disobedient Jews on the inside. And they felt like they were the only ones who were doing it right. They felt like, man, wow, it's just awful how how awful the world is out there. And it's so dark, and it's so broken, and it's so awful. And then inside, man, there's all these people, and they'd they'd get together and talk about how awful the rest of the world was, both inside and outside of Israel. And so you kind of get a sense Right? Do, do you know anybody like this today? Someone who just has this feeling like, yeah, everybody else is wrong, but I, I, I've got it. I've got it. No, 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 you just, yeah, th- this is how it is. The Jews saw, uh, the, the Pharisees saw the social, the political, and the cultural pollution in the nation as a whole, and since they didn't have any direct authority, they couldn't actually do anything about it. Okay? Because they had no power. And so what they did is um, kind of a natural tendency. You know, when you can't fix the the stuff out there, you try to fix the only thing that you can, which is yourself. Okay? So in an effort to try to bring about national purity, they thought, all right, we're going to squeeze so hard. We're going to obey the Bible so much and all of the laws so precisely and and, and exactly that hopefully we can get the rest of the nation to do that too. Okay, so this is their thinking. And, And it wasn't purity just for the sake of purity. Okay, they actually had a bigger agenda. Okay, they thought that if they could purify themselves and the nation enough, then God would bless Israel again. That's what they were aiming for. Okay, Their purity and their strictness was designed to wake God up and get him to act. That's what they were trying to do. They wanted God to set Israel free. Israel's under the oppression of Rome. Israel's broken in more ways than you can imagine. And they wanted God to wake up and act. And they thought... We need to clean ourselves up. We need to get ourselves pure so that God would wake up, hear us, and act. And then they're thinking, like, doesn't everyone in Israel want that? So far, have I said anything that you might not agree with? I mean, right? Everybody wanted God to act. And so, for them, if everybody would really want God to act, well, then that's why you need to be like me. Okay? That's why the Pharisees said, you've got to be like me. This was their rationale for pushing their purity on everyone else. Their thought was that if we could get the rest of Israel to obey God the way we are, then God will act. So, it makes sense. You get a picture of what these folks were like. I think about a group of politically motivated um, journalists or lobbyists I think would be a good way to compare how these folks acted. Um, Folks that are actively seeking to push their morality on the rest of the country. That's not too far of a stretch, is it, for us to imagine what that might look like today? Many of the Pharisees, not all of them, but many of the Pharisees would resort to violence if they could get away with it. Because what's a little bit of blood for the kingdom of God? Right? And sometimes God brings judgment. So you need to understand that to understand the way that Jesus' words would have been heard. Okay? If we can put the first slide up. If you can't read it, don't worry. This was kind of the prevailing notion of the day on the righteousness meter. Okay? The righteousness meter. And so you've got the scribes and the Pharisees are down here, and they, on the righteousness meter, this is what everybody thought. They are scoring enormously high. Right? Here's the kingdom of heaven. Right? They're in. And here's everybody else. So... It wasn't just the scribes and the Pharisees that thought about themselves this way, but everybody pretty much thought about it this way. Okay, There was a Jewish saying that if only two people made it to heaven, one would be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. Okay, So this was the prevailing uh, thinking. And so think about now what Jesus says in verse 20. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, next slide. This is what they would have thought Jesus meant. Right? If you need to exceed, that means you've got to get even farther. You've got to reach even farther that the kingdom of heaven, they're just short of it. You've got to exceed their righteousness if you want to make it to the kingdom of heaven. So if you were one of Jesus' listeners, you would have sat there and thought, man, I can't even come close to where they are now, and you're telling me i got to get farther than that? I've got to go beyond? Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, I'd given up before, but now, Jesus, if you're reinforcing their righteousness man, maybe I'm not going to follow you after all, because I can't. This is not what Jesus is saying. This is not what Jesus means in verse 20. This next slide will show you what Jesus means. Jesus is saying, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is Jesus' analysis of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says they are completely missing the boat. Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not even headed in the right direction. Okay? They're not even... (laughs) <laughs> they're, they're, they're not even you know, they showed up to play basketball, right, SDSU in the tournament, heartbreaking loss at the end, it would be like Jesus saying the scribes and the Pharisees showed up to play and they were in their home court and the game was on the road okay, they're not even the right, they're not on the ball field, they're, they're not, they're just, they're, they're not I mean, you can see it, Jesus says loud and clear, their righteousness That's not my kingdom. That is not my kingdom. And we can see a little more of Jesus' analysis of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees a little bit later in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he says this. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin.'" And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so Jesus is in in this analysis, next slide, Um, he actually parses this out a little bit. And what he shows is that the Pharisees actually, they, they are doing some things right. Okay, they're tithing, and Jesus says you ought to have done that. You ought to tithe mint and dill and cumin. But you have ignored the most important parts of the Bible. You present yourself as teachers of the Bible, as interpreters, as the moral police. And Jesus says, the only part of you that's worthwhile is this tall. Is this tall. And as I thought about that, and <clears throat> as I thought about ways that, that we can understand that today, I think that sometimes it's really helpful to distinguish between religion and relationship. The Pharisees were all about the ceremonies, they were all about purity, but they had no relationship with God, they had no part of who God was. God is justice and mercy and faithfulness. And they completely ignored those things. And so they had an incredible zeal for religion, but were completely bankrupt when it came to actually knowing God, let alone to be able to speak for him. In Matthew 15... Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 3, listen to this. He says, you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Boy, I think we all need to look at this and ask ourselves, what direction are we pointing? Why do you come to church? Why are you part of the church? Is it to go through the motions? Or is it because, more than anything else, you want a relationship with God? There are people who won't set foot in a church because all they've ever experienced from Christians is something like this. We need to understand that. We need to know that. We need to speak to it, even if we're not guilty of it, so that people know that what we're about here at Harbor is a relationship with Jesus. That's why we exist. in the rest of the New Testament, we see that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, was a a righteousness of externals and not the heart, right? It was a righteousness um, to be seen by others. You know, it looked so good and so religious in front of other people when other people were watching, when there was praise to be had from the watching world. And yet, when they were alone, there was nothing. There was nothing. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount goes through what real righteousness looks like. As opposed, and and it continues to confront the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus' challenge to the scribes and the Pharisees, his challenge to his disciples was, really, it was to give up their interpretation of the Bible. Okay, that was the problem. was that the scribes and the Pharisees, they said, well, hey, I've got chapter and verse here. It says to tithe mint and dill and cumin. And I'm doing it. What's the problem? Jesus was saying, you need to give up your interpretation of the Bible. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. You need to give that up, and you need to follow me. You need to follow me. Jesus says, embrace me. It is going to look like loss to you, but in the end, there is great gain. Jesus said, follow me, because your way looks like the way of power, but you are heading for a cliff. And if you don't turn around, you're going to run yourself off. And so Jesus says to his disciples and to us today, if you are heading in this direction, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will be apart from what he is doing. You'll be heading in the wrong direction. It's really interesting because as, you, as we've already seen even in what Jesus says in Matthew and who Jesus is, Jesus was also concerned with purity. Okay? Jesus was the one who said, not a dot, not a, not a letter of the law, not an iota will pass away until it's all fulfilled. Right? So it's not like Jesus was down on the Bible, but he was down on what they were doing with the Bible. Okay? For Jesus, purity was purity that would actually welcome outsiders into our midst, right? Jesus spent time with the, pe- with the sinners like us, right? Jesus spent time. It wasn't, it wasn't the kind of purity that seeks to do violence against the non-Christian world, but it's the kind of purity, it's the purity of heart that seeks to love, that seeks to understand people, and that seeks to care for them so that they can know God. So it's not about an angry zeal to pay non-Christians back. But it's about turning the other cheek. It's about going the second mile. It's loving your enemies. That's the light that God wants to shine. That's the salt that brings the flavor of heaven to earth. And so the culture that Jesus was bringing, this kingdom of heaven, it was a denunciation of the ways of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus was saying they are false teachers. They are false teachers. We've seen hints of opposition already uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus is putting it out there. There are groups of folks out there that are teaching the Bible, and they're false. If you follow them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness needs to be on the outside and on the inside. So the question for us is, how do you know? Right? Like how do you know which way to follow? How do you know if you're really following Jesus and his righteousness? How do you know that the leaders of harbor aren't just like the scribes and the Pharisees and we're leading you down a path that won't get you anywhere near heaven? How do you know? One way. You've got to read the book for yourself. I didn't come to do away with this book. I didn't save you so that you don't have to read this book anymore. I didn't save you so that you'd be so overwhelmed with grace that you would put this on your shelf and think, well, I don't have to read it, so I'm not going to. I came to bring this book to life. Until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not a letter from this book will pass away. It will continually be relevant to you in your life. It will speak to you in every area of your life. And the only way that you can know if the pastor who's preaching to you right now is from me or not, is if you check what he says with your own reading of the scriptures. Ultimately, that's the only way you'll ever know. It says in Acts 17 that there was a group of folks that was especially noble. They lived in Berea, and every time the Apostle Paul would preach to them, Okay, the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament. So if anybody you can trust, right, it would be him. And yet it says in Acts 17, in verse 11, Now these Jews in Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So when the apostle Paul preached, they went back and checked. Is that right? Is that right? Is that really in there? Did he interpret that right? Let's read that for ourselves and see. So if they did that for the guy who wrote half the New Testament, y'all got to do that with me. You've got to read the book. You've got to love this book. You do. It's the only way. This is, I mean, God has spoken to you. Right? And I know the book is at least 2,000 years old. Parts of it are even older than that. I get that it's hard. I do understand that some of it is hard to understand. Some of it feels impossible to understand. It's a big book. Right? I, I mean, I do understand that. But you don't have to read all of it, all at once. Okay? <coughs> There there, there is so much in this that you can understand. And you want to devote yourself to it. You want to love this book. What's your relationship with the Bible like? Just think about it. What's your relationship with the Bible like? Good friend? of those cousins that you hope isn't going to show up at the family reunion. Maybe it's a new acquaintance to you. There is joy and life. Jesus is trying to communicate in these four verses that you have every reason to read the Bible. And if you have a hard time, start with the Gospel of Matthew. Just read what we've been doing already. You can listen to the sermons if you want you know, to get the sense of it. Right? You reading it doesn't take away from needing to have people teach you. Um, that's part of how God has built the church is that you have people that can help you understand it. Um, but you can read the Gospel of Matthew. Um, you read the Gospel of John. Um, the book of Ephesians is a great place to start. Um, you just want to start reading. You want to get to a place where you love this book, where this book becomes a place for you of peace and joy, of comfort. All the things Elizabeth talked about at the opening of our service, right? It happens for us in worship. It can happen to you every day in the word. It's the only way that you'll know if your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the only way you can know for sure. The good news for us is that Jesus actually has shown us the righteousness that he requires. Can you do the next slide? This is it. We've been looking at it all year. In 360 words, Jesus sums it all up. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 20. 17 verses. Jesus sums it all up for us. In 360 words, think about that. He covers everything. You want to know what Jesus' righteousness looks like? Jesus says, blessed are the honest. People who are honest with God. They're honest about their condition before him. They're poor in spirit, and they're mourning over their sin. And they're humble enough to learn from Jesus. And then, blessed are those who are hungry for God who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, I'm not what I want to be, but I want to be. If you feel that way, Jesus says you're blessed. You'll be satisfied. He will give you his righteousness. And blessed are those who bless others. Blessed are those who are persecuted. These folks, these folks are salt and light. These folks are the people that God wants to shine his light on. Spotlight from heaven and say, look at this man, look at this woman. This is what life looks like when my power is infused, when my love takes hold of a life. And then we're looking the last four weeks. These are folks who love the Bible because that's what keeps them from getting led astray. This is the righteousness of Christ. This is the righteousness that Jesus offers us. And if you're like me, when I think about a list like this, it reminds me of something else. Go to the next slide. Reminds me of the cross. Because if I'm honest with myself, there are lots of times when I'm hiding from God. There are lots of times when I'm not hungry for God. There are lots of times when my desire in my heart is not to be a blessing to others. When I take my light and I cover it up and put it under a basket. When I'm not willing to be A fragrance or a taste of heaven. I struggle to love the Bible continually. And the good news is, if you're willing to say that, then you're right back here and you're blessed. God doesn't want the perfect because there aren't any. God has come for sinners. God has come so that he would take us from where we are and lift us up to him. And the way that he's done that is through the cross. Because Jesus came, and when he died, he died for every time that we failed. And when we come to him confessing our sins, that's when Jesus says, you're blessed, you're blessed. You're blessed. It's when you admit that you're a sinner that you're willing then to be sorry for your sins. And when you're sorry for your sins, you come to Jesus in humility and you say, please help me. And as you do that, you begin to hunger for Jesus and for his ways. And then when persecution comes, you're willing to take it because you know this is how they treated Jesus. And it makes sense they treat you the same way. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. When you come to the cross, Jesus lifts you up. And as he lifts you up, we not only declare that he was righteous, but God gives us his righteousness. There's really two ways to relate to the righteousness of Jesus. In his death, he died for our sins. And the Bible says in Isaiah 61, verse 10, so you can look it up and see if it's so, it says that God wraps us in a robe of righteousness. And so morally speaking, no matter how bad we are, no matter how fallen we are, God wraps us up in the perfect life of Jesus. So when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the perfection of Jesus covers us up and makes us righteous. But then there's more. The righteousness of Jesus doesn't just cover us, but it actually fills us. Into our hearts that often are empty, God pours his righteous love. Into our lives where we struggle to be patient, God pours into us the patience of Jesus. Into the parts of our lives where we are not self-controlled, or we give in to addiction, we give in to temptation, we give in to lust, God pours into us the righteous self-control of Jesus. And so Jesus comes on us and he comes in us. It's amazing that um, the righteousness that Jesus requires, the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, is the righteousness that he gifts to us. What God requires, he provides. And it's interesting because so often we'll accept the blessings of God in our lives. We'll accept all the good things and we'll refuse the best gift that he ever gave us. God has made us righteous in Jesus. And as we think about him, as we worship him, as we spend time with him in his word, and we let his light shine in us, that light begins to reflect out of us. That's the light that we need. That's the light that God has called us to shine. This is the light that, That God wants you to show and to shine over the next month that remains before Easter. This is the light that people need to see. This is the righteousness that people need to see in practice in your life so that they can know that Jesus makes a difference. (coughs) If you're not there now, confess your sins, come back to the bottom, and God will lift you back up. And if you are there, Let your righteous deeds be shown among the people that see you so that they might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you call us to righteousness and then you provide that righteousness for us. internal and external righteousness that covers us with your perfection and then also fills us. Lord, I pray that you would cause this righteousness to grow. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to not be satisfied with religion, ceremonies, or external purity. We want to know you, Lord. We want to walk with you. Thank you that you provide your righteousness for us before we ever grow. Thank you for accepting us exactly as we are. And thank you, too, for not leaving us there. Work in our hearts, Lord. Help us to follow your righteous ways, to be honest, to hunger for you, and to long to bless others. And Jesus, for those who are here and they're not yet Christians, I pray that you would touch their hearts, that you'd come over them and show them that they can't do it on their own. Be like leaping to the moon. Show them, Lord, that you are able to reach down and pick them up and bring them to yourself. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.